All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the privilege of gathering together as your children, those saved by grace. We come before you with uh, joy and peace that we can be separate from this world and you have made us separate from this world. And you have rescued us from ourselves. Father, we ask that your spirit guide this message, that you help us understand what we need to know today. As long as it is called today, you have a personal message for us. And most of all, Father, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, out of heaven to become a man, to take our place as a sin offering so our sins are removed from us. We thank you and praise you for that always. We ask these things in Christ's precious name and by the power of the Spirit we pray. Amen. All right, as you can see on the board, we're continuing our uh, topic from last Sunday, The Fullness of the Gospel, Part 2. And we talked about its fullness being revealed to us in several different ways, in terms of its presentation, in terms of the reality of the gospel, and also regarding the person of Jesus Christ. So we're going to do some review first, and I'm going to go kind of quickly because I have some points at the end that I really want to get to. So just sit back for you know, the first 10 or 15 minutes and you know, just in, take in the review because this is all from last Sunday. All right. We first noted telling both sides of the story when we share the gospel. And that man, being a sinner, needs to realize the situation he is in before he, he will turn to Christ as his Lord and Savior. So we talked about the magnitude of the gap between God and man. And we noticed in Peter's two gospel messages in Acts chapters 2 and 3 that he elaborated on the guilt of the people and their rejection of the Holy One from God. He elaborated on their sinfulness and the gap between them them and God. And if you notice, especially in Acts chapter 2, then he gave the solution, even after, uh, even waiting for when they asked for it. If you see see that in Acts chapter 2, Peter is in no rush, in other words, to get to the solution. He's letting people fully understand the, the... Uh, debt that they're in and the direness of their situation and then he gives them the solution even even waiting till they asked what shall we do so Peter also noted in those chapters which I hope you read uh, that Jesus came to turn us from our evil ways which includes not only sin but self sanctification and that our own ways cannot save us or preserve us So we also saw last week the difference between a man's self-righteousness and God's righteousness is as high as the heavens are above the earth. So the problem that that we face as mankind with sinful flesh is we think there's something good about us, even if it's a little bit. And we think we're close to God. We think we're, you know, not that bad and, 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 you know, he's probably okay with me. This is generally how the flesh thinks. And that's the hurdle we have to get over because the Bible says as high as the heavens are from the earth, that's how different God's ways are than our ways. As we saw in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 and Isaiah 64, verse 6. 
So that magnitude needs to be shared when giving the gospel. When we have the opportunity, like Peter did in Acts 2 and 3, he just went on and on. He wasn't in this rush to make it the concise gospel in two sentences. He said, let me explain the situation to you. And with these people, they were listening and they had time. Sometimes you don't have the time, but sometimes you do. And we need to just have a heart-to-heart talk with who we're dealing with. So people may reject the reality of this uh, magnitude between them and God, but they need to understand the dire situation that they are in before they will turn to Christ from the heart in faith. Hopefully then they say to you or me, what shall we do? What shall I do? I didn't realize it was this bad. What shall I do? And that's what we can share about believing. Another uh, reality about the gospel message is this. The gospel message today is often made about the individual and their comfort, not about the need to satisfy the Lord and his majesty and righteousness. And I think this is another very subtle mistake that well-meaning Christians dilute the gospel into something that can bandage people's wounds, that can make them feel better, that can give them hope for a good life on this earth. But that's not what it's about, right? It's about satisfying the Lord God Almighty who says you're insufficient and you need to be condemned. It's about satisfying His demands. So often the deep sinful nature of a person's selfishness is never addressed. That's really what it comes down to. The deeper need of reconciliation or peace with a holy, righteous God on his terms of unconditional surrender is never addressed. How many times have you presented the gospel in terms of unconditional surrender? I know I can say that I haven't most of the time in the past anyway. When I look back, it's more of that watered-down version of, you know, turn to Jesus and everything will be all right, which is true, but they don't understand the magnitude of that statement. And they may be doing it for selfish reasons rather than for satisfying a holy and righteous God. Unconditional surrender. All right? You can't hold on to your own methods your own ways, and still turn to Christ for salvation. You can't do that. One reason Jesus said that a man must deny self and follow him is this reason on the board. That self is the God of every man and woman without Christ. In some way, shape, or form, self is each person's God, whether it's taking care of self, whether it's elevating self, whatever it is. Much of what mankind does and says is for the benefit and comfort of himself in some way. It's generally all about him and not about what God wants. And that's why, in all actuality, saving faith is a surrender of the heart to God. That's really what saving faith is. This is what I've come to like, gather and understand which I didn't understand before, it means repenting from self-sufficiency and self-sanctification. I can't do it on my own. I'm a sinner. And instead, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. It truly is a heart issue. 
As Jesus said in the first words of his public ministry in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe. It's a change in mindset and it's a turning in the soul. And so we can be messages of this concept on the board, as our Lord was. We also discussed how we can be used by the Lord in sharing His gospel. In witnessing to others, we let the light of Christ shine by our words and actions. And that doesn't take our ability. It takes our humility and our willingness to be used by Him. Listen, God uses the, the weakest of the weak to give the gospel, doesn't he? He used Balaam's ass to give the gospel. He can make the, st- the stone speak. He'll use a little child to give the gospel to an intellect. Doesn't that right there tell you that it doesn't depend on your own ability? That God just says, just admit you can't do it yourself and stop trying to do it yourself and, and just be open, be humble, and let me fill your mouth? And that's when he gets all the glory, right? So again, in witnessing to others, we let the light of Christ shine by our words and our actions. And that doesn't take our ability, but simply our humility and our willingness to be used by Him. Then we watch Him go to work through us. Just, just be, just enjoy that you have the truth and the peace and the joy that that gives. Just be and be filled with the Spirit and let Him go to work through you. See the opportunities and see the things that come out of your mouth. They will surprise you, and it will be a whole lot of fun. So as we talked about on last Sunday, instead of worrying about the words of our presentation in giving the gospel, which is really relying on human effort and wisdom, we should be focused on building a relationship with others and even being a friend to them, whether they immediately accept the gospel or not. If we relate to people by his love, they will see it. That's all. And we're going to see this coming up in the ways that the gospel is given. And in Luke 12, don't forget, we're not going to turn there today, but if you want to look at it again later, you can. Jesus said, don't worry what you're going to say. The Spirit will fill your mouth at that time. Luke 12, verses 11 and 12. So we talked about focusing on the relationship with the person in front of us or the small group of people that we happen to be uh, gathered in. Focusing on the relationship, not the preconceived presentation, which I always used to do because I was nervous, you know, and I wanted to get it right. But it's not the way of the Spirit. It's the way of man, focusing on the preconceived presentation. So on the board, we need to learn to be human and real and give others a chance to enter our lives not just be robotic Christians who give the gospel and run. You know, sometimes you you might be in a conversation with someone and you're worried about what they're going to say or if they're going to challenge you or they're going to come up with some scientific theory that you don't understand. Don't worry about it. You don't actually have to have all the answers. You have the truth. And it's the Word of God that's alive and powerful, right? God will use that as seeds in their souls, even those that are stubborn and kick against the pricks. God will use it. It's about relationships, and in fact, that's what we've been seeing. The whole Bible is about relationships. So we ought to be witnesses of His person. We talked about that last week, too. The person of Jesus Christ. And if we represent Him, 
we pass on his care and love for others in relationships. Think of all the relationships Jesus had when he was on earth. The, the one-on-one talks he had with people. And then the crowds he dealt with and the families he ate with in their homes. It was, it was all about relationships. And it's that thing, I think, that can be missing from a sterile presentation of the gospel. Where God's saying, just get in there and relate. You're a sinner just like them, but you're just on the other side now. You're saved. And they're still missing it. But just get in there and relate. And see what the Spirit uses you to say. It's probably not what you think He's going to have you say. Also, we talked about if you have a hard time with this, relating to people, caring about people, especially those that you don't really care about as far as personality. They rub you the wrong way. Maybe they're against you in some way in your life. If you have a hard time with that, we talked about remembering all that he saved you from, right? On the board. Do you remember what he did for you personally? Do you think back to your youth, your sinfulness, the, the way you treated people in the past and realize that he totally forgave you of those things? That's where it's good to remember those past failures because it makes us humble. And he who is forgiven much loves much in Luke 7, 47. It will be easy for us to love others that don't deserve it, including our enemies, when we remember how much he forgave us of individually. And then you'll be gracious. It'll be easy to be gracious. We're sinners saved by grace. And then we can tell of his marvelous deeds done on our behalf. So we're to make an issue out of the Lord himself, his person. And as I mentioned last week, I'll often say to a person when giving the gospel, do you realize who Jesus Christ really is? Because let's face it, everybody believes in Jesus Christ in some way, right? At least he was a guy that lived 2,000 years ago, or a nice guy, or a prophet. Um, You know, you name it. But do they realize who Jesus Christ really is? that he's the son of God, God in the flesh, and that he was without sin, and that he willingly went to the cross. Do, do they understand these things? Most people don't, even those that say they're believers. So we've got to make him the issue. He is the issue. We're to testify of who he is. That includes the reality of him as Lord of all people. He's not just a man. He's Lord. He's creator the Bible says. You want to open up a can of worms, go for that one. That's fun, right? Because people just can't click that in their souls. What do you mean he's the creator? And that's just from a lack of understanding that he really was God in heaven before he became a man. So these things are all good. Even if people reject it at first, these things are all good. They're all beautiful. So people need to know that they need to adjust to the justice of God and His holiness. Thus the need for repentance for the forgiveness of sins being proclaimed in His name, as in Luke 24, 47. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's all throughout the New Testament. When a person repents of his sinfulness and guilt, he is adjusting to the justice of God. He's aligning himself with God's thinking, okay? And that takes a change for most people, doesn't it? 
Because most people don't think they're that bad or that guilty or whatever. Most people don't think they need to repent. Most people don't realize the perfect purity and holiness of God and that he can't even look at sin. So when they come to that realization, they have the opportunity to repent, to align themselves with God's thinking, to admit that they're guilty and sinful. And let's remember again that repentance even is a gift from God. As we saw in uh, Acts eleven eighteen. when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. He has granted it to them. It's a gift. And it's a gift given to the humble. Part of the gospel is calling people to repentance, to admitting that they're wrong and sinful and that they can't save themselves. And understanding the magnitude of that reality makes fertile soil. You want the crops to grow? Do you want to get beautiful fruit from those plants? Well, only God can cause the growth. But we can help prepare the soil. We can plant seeds, right? We can water it, as Paul said. And then let God do the work. Part of that watering is making them see the magnitude of the situation, the reality of their sinfulness. So another way to put it is this. The fullness of the gospel must include an emphasis on our need for reconciliation with a perfect, holy God. And as I reminded you last week, reconciliation just means peace or a peace treaty. God has already offered peace with his own blood. But you and I, each man has to sign that we agree to those terms of unconditional surrender. And that's his, it's his peace treaty. He's the holy one that we've offended. You see? So that's part of the fullness of the gospel, having an emphasis on that. As the Spirit mentioned earlier, it's first about God and His majesty. It's not about man and His comfort. And the content of our message is Christ and God, not our personal journey to faith, not all about us, it's about Him. And the message that's been committed to us in 2 Corinthians 5 is the word of reconciliation. So let's go there as we uh, finish up the review portion of our message Go to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. Second Corinthians 5, 18. This is the message that's been committed to us as his messengers, as his ambassadors. It says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. There's a message right there, right? How about telling somebody that? God was in Christ. People don't understand how is Jesus God and man. Well, God was in Christ, in the person of Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's, that's our message. That's, that's the good news, isn't it? That we can have peace with God. 
And it doesn't depend on us. Thank God. So on the board, those who are spiritually sleeping in this world without Christ, they need to be made aware that as sinners, they do not have peace with God. And they can't have peace with God on their own merits. They need to be made aware of the need to repent. And, you know, if you don't like the word repent, use a different word. I personally like the word admit, you know, because repent, some people don't understand what it means or it strikes them religious, whatever. If you don't admit in humility that you're wrong, that's the problem, right? If you don't repent, if you don't change your thinking on that topic, that you're a sinner, that's the problem. So whatever word you want to use is fine, but they need to be made aware of the need to repent or admit their guilt, their sinfulness. Submitting in humility before a holy and righteous God. We saw last week, who did Jesus come for? Sinners. And what did he lead them to do? Repent. It's pretty simple. So repentance is a reality that every sinner is called to. To change their mind about what they think about themselves. Some don't think they're a sinner. Some think they're good enough. Right? Some make themselves their own God. But they need to repent. And as we've been seeing, that's part of the good news of the gospel. Because that relieves the burden that they've been carrying. Maybe not even realizing that they're carrying it. But they can throw that yoke off their shoulders. And say, wow, thank, thank you for telling me that. Because now I'm relieved it doesn't depend on me. Sometimes I thought I could do it, but I know I can't do it. <laughs> it keeps coming, you know, you get those glimpses. It's funny how people live in denial, right? They live in denial. They live in these different defense mechanisms where they just kind of block it out that they're insufficient. But then every once in a while it creeps in that they're insufficient, right? So then they block it out again. So God the Holy Spirit in His perfect timing will get us when they're ready. And they're ready to admit that they're insufficient. So now we're going to slow down a bit. That was pretty much our review from last Sunday. And uh, we'll begin some new points here today the Spirit has for us. On the board, people first need to realize that as sinners, they need reconciliation with the Holy God and then the good news that someone has paid their debt. That's what you see the apostles when they preach the gospel. That's how you see them do it. You need reconciliation with the Holy God. You're not sufficient. And then they give the good news that the debt has been paid. The fullness of the gospel starts with God's justice and then flows to his love. How fast you go through that process is different every time, and that's the beauty of it. How much you're allowed to elaborate on God's justice or people's sinfulness, and then how much he wants you to transition to his love and how soon, that's, that's up to the Spirit. Just enjoy going along for the ride. But that's the general structure, I guess, if you, if you had to say, of the fullness of the gospel. So if there's nothing to repent from or be saved from, there's no need to turn to Christ, right? That's the, that's the idea. And instead of throwing out a watered-down gospel where people don't realize why they need to believe, then they may not turn to Christ from the heart. They may just consent to what you're saying because it sounds good or it's the right thing to do. 
That's not what, that's not what any of us wants. How many of us want some half-hearted uh, expression of faith that's not real, that's not a surrender? So I'm, I'm coming to the point even in my own life where I want to give the harsh fullness of the gospel so that they really understand it and then let, let them accept it or reject it because that's the real gospel. Do you know what I mean? It's not some half-hearted thing that's going to deceive them into thinking they're in a good place when they're not. And we're going to get to that coming up. So again, on the board, the fullness of the gospel. This is why Jesus would say, deny yourself and follow me. Self is in the way of saving faith. One must be willing to turn away from self-reliance and sin, in other words, repent, before they can trust in Christ for salvation by believing, as in Mark 1.15. Your soul can only face one way. Think about it that way. I don't know if that helps you with like maybe a visual aid, but your soul can only face one way. It can't be facing the world and Christ. All right? Not in its position. We all fail, we all sin, as, even as believers, right? But we're talking about lifestyle. And which way does your soul face? Which, what, what does your soul lean on? Does it lean on self and the provisions of the world, or does it lean on Christ? It can't be both, actually. So they have to repent before they can truly believe in Christ. And we are his messengers. So we follow his example, and we follow the apostles' example. Now, in a book I've been reading called Tell the Truth by Will Metzger, here's what he says. Understanding that God, not us, is the evangelizer or the one who brings results is wonderfully liberating. This makes witnessing an adventure in which we merely ride along with God as he moves out. Isn't that cool? Again, understanding that God, not us, is the evangelizer or the one who brings results it's wonderfully, wonderfully liberating. It should be liberating to you. It should give you freedom, even when sharing the gospel with people. And it is an adventure. God's the one driving. He lets you be by his side. He's always by your side, even though you don't see him. He's always in you. So it's really not you the one giving the gospel, and you're not the one that can save anybody. So when we remember this point on the board... It should be very freeing that you don't have to get every word right. The Spirit is in you, and He knows what to do. So if this is our attitude, we can be bold and transparent like the apostles were throughout the book of Acts. The apostles simply boasted about Christ and His person and the righteousness and love of God. I mean, I, I love the book of Acts more and more because of this. All they did was, you know, pour forth their passion about who Jesus Christ really was. About his works, about his sacrifice, about his resurrection, about his forgiveness. So sharing the gospel should be a fun opportunity, not a daunting task. Not something we should fear because we're not going to say the right thing. Because the Holy Spirit is in each one of us. And he uses sinners just like us. And he's just looking for us to get out of the way, right? And be humble. So here's some food for thought on the, on the board. Think about this. 
The Spirit will lead us into a different gospel presentation each and every time. Each and every time. God doesn't need to repeat Himself in the exact same way ever. And He never did it in the Scriptures. Just think about that. And His Spirit lives inside of you knowing what every soul that's in front of you needs to hear. So how cool is that? It's, it's such a dynamic thing going on that all He asks us to do is be humble. All right, It's not about our ability, right? It's about our humility. Get out of the way and see what He does through you. Just make sure you're filled with the Spirit. Make sure you have the right heart and see what He does. And in that way, it's, it's quite a fun experience. And every time it's going to be different. So that's another reason we shouldn't preconceive what we're going to say. Because he knows exactly what each person needs to hear. And you have the Word of God. Those of you that read the Word of God regularly, that go to Bible class, you have the Word of God in your soul. You don't even know it's there, a lot of it. You couldn't recall it if you had to on a test, but the Spirit will have it come out of your mouth if someone needs to hear it. Right? How many of you have had that happen? I mean, at least once or twice you've had that happen. You're like, where did that come from? I didn't even know I knew that. And that's where it really is a lot of fun. And, and you get that reassurance that the Spirit is with you. So we should just be concerned about having the right heart and sharing our love and admiration for Christ. And the Spirit will give us the right words for each person at the time. Now, we also talked about last week helping people realize the magnitude of the situation like Peter did for his Jewish brethren in Acts chapters 2 and 3. And they received his harsh message of reality that they rejected the Messiah, right? And that they were guilty and that they were sinners. We also have uh, other examples in the book of Acts especially of apostles or deacons giving the gospel. But every single one of them is different. Think about Stephen. He's an example of a man who bluntly told the religious people the truth about their guilt, but they did not receive his message. They received Peter's in Acts 2 and 3. They did not receive Stephen's message in Acts chapter 7. On the board, there are various gospel presentations throughout the Word of God. Stephen shared out of love for his brethren, his heart for them and for God, and he boldly laid before the Jews the depth of their sinfulness. I mean, it was uncomfortable. If you were in the room when Stephen said what he said in Acts chapter 7, it's uncomfortable. And turn there to Acts chapter 7, because I want to show you the end, the end of his presentation. Go to Acts 7.51. If you read the whole chapter, you see a full explanation of the Scriptures. And Stephen goes through the whole Old Testament progression and how it all pointed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That should sound familiar to us, right? What's Pastor been saying? The whole Bible is the gospel, right? And look what Stephen did in Acts chapter 7. We're not going to read the whole thing right now, but he goes through the whole order of things in the Old Testament, how they all point to Jesus Christ, the one they missed. And then look what he says in verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Let me ask you a question. Was Stephen filled with the Holy Spirit? When he was earlier, I don't know if it's in this chapter or the one before, chosen as a deacon, he's the only one of the deacons where it says he was full of faith and full of the Spirit. Not to say the others weren't, but this was specifically said about Stephen. And here he comes out laying out this whole summary presentation of the gospel in Acts chapter 7. And look how harsh he is with these men. Would you say that to somebody? You're stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart. (laughs) Who didn't you kill? Right? I mean, this is love. But this is the right thing for these people that he was speaking to at the moment. They needed to hear this. Or they would not repent, change their mind, and turn to Christ. And they didn't in this case. But this was the right message for them. I'm sure Stephen was hoping to hear what Peter heard in Acts chapter 2. Brethren, what shall we do? We're wrong. What should we do? But he didn't hear that, unfortunately. But Stephen, regardless, shared about the justice of God with those that he loved, even these religious Jews. And uh, it was harsh, but they needed to hear it. And a man of faith like him lets the chips fall where they may. I hope one day we can all do that properly. Tell the truth honestly and let the chips fall where they may. And for Stephen, it was his time to die. It was his time to have the honor of dying as a martyr. And he was ready and willing because he loved the Lord that much. And I hope when we have that chance, we we have the privilege of honestly giving the truth like he did. He was filled with the Spirit, and part of his gospel presentation was elaborating on the guilt of the people, just like Peter did. That was Acts 2 and 3, though, when Peter did that. On the board, we then also can talk about Acts chapter 10, where we have another presentation of the gospel because it's a different crowd. And this time it was a humble crowd. So it wasn't the religious, arrogant Jews that were anti-Christ, right, and thinking that they were right about everything. It was a humble crowd, Cornelius and his friends and family. And they were already God-fearing, you see, But they needed to know about Jesus Christ. Who is he? And that's why Peter was called to them. So guess what? Peter gave them a different message. If you read Acts chapter 10, which we're not going to read right now, but Peter's message was much more mild to them. It wasn't about repent and your evil sinners. It was (laughs) filling them in on what just happened. Peter told them the story of Jesus. And guess what? They believed. Peter said to them, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And the group believed. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Totally different gospel presentation in this case. Would they have received the Holy Spirit if they did not receive Peter's message about Jesus? Of course not, right? They wouldn't have been filled with the Spirit unless they received what Peter was telling them about Jesus. But yet, when you read Acts chapter 10, Peter did not directly tell them to repent and believe. He just told them the story and said, whoever believes receives forgiveness of sins. 
So every gospel presentation is different. And then on the board, we see Paul's in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 through 34. In this passage, Paul called all men to repent. All men to repent. And some of them ended up believing without being given that direct command. So you can go read it later. We're not going to read it right now. But Paul did not say in this passage, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. He called on all men to repent. And then it says that some ended up believing in Christ. A different way to present the gospel to lead them to faith in Christ, right? Every time it's different. And that's, to me, very exciting and very interesting. Um, And what was Paul's general approach, okay? Go to Acts chapter 20. I just want to show you something. Acts chapter 20. So we see every gospel presentation is different, all right, in the way that people are led by the Spirit to present the truth and lead someone to saving faith. But what was Paul's general approach to the gospel? Now, this is church age, I remind you, okay? This is church age. This isn't, if you want to get hyper-dispensational, you know, this isn't before the cross, right? This is after the cross, right? Look at Acts 20, verse 20. Paul says, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says this is how he always did it. This was his habit, in other words. This was his his, uh, method or structure of giving the gospel testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And those are the basic tenets of Jesus' gospel in the Gospels, just like Paul's. Repent and believe the gospel, right? So it's, it's, it's consistent throughout the whole Bible. Old Testament, Gospels, New Testament letters, we see it over and over about repenting and believing But the way that is presented is different for each crowd, according to the Holy Spirit. So on the board, the gospel of Jesus Christ can be given in a variety of ways, all meant to lead people to saving faith in Christ. It is the Spirit who is out in front, guiding men according to the situation, guiding each of us according to the situation. And uh, I hope you go read these things. We we don't have time to read them right now, but just compare them. Just have fun. Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 7, and then Acts 10, 34 through 43, and Acts 17, verse 30 through 34. You'll see the Spirit doesn't have to do the same thing twice, and it's not the wise thing to do either, because every crowd is different. The Lord never needs to repeat himself. Think about the miracles that the Lord Jesus Christ did when he was on the earth. Every miracle was done differently, right? He never healed a blind man the same way twice. Why is that? Just to show off how awesome he is, maybe? 
just to uh, show also in giving of the gospel, it's the same way. That God can accomplish his goal in a different way each and every time because he knows what each soul needs to hear. And that should give us freedom in witnessing. It should relax us and be like, wow, this is going to be interesting because there's more than one way to do it. All right, so let's move on to a different situation that I think we need to talk about. What if you're dealing with someone that claims to be a new believer? All right, so you're not giving the gospel to someone that you know is an unbeliever, but someone that says they're a believer, okay? And there's all variations of what that means, by the way. Don't just think they believe because they say they're a believer. Maybe instead of explaining more of the gospel to them, we should ask them, what is it like? What's it like? In other words, put the ball in their court and give them the opportunity to share what Jesus Christ means to them or what being a believer means to them. You may be surprised positively or negatively by the answer, and that may lead you in what to do next. I know uh, Monica gave me an example a while ago of someone that she was giving the gospel to, and it was right when the teaching from the pulpit was talking about if someone says they're a believer, ask, ask them what that means to them, right? Or follow up with a question. You know what I mean? And this person who said, oh, yeah, I'm a believer, did not believe in Jesus Christ. They believed in God in general. They believed in goodness. They believed there's a, there's a higher power. But without that follow-up question, that never would have came out, right? So you, you, we have a lot of that. We're faced with a lot of that in this world. So let the quote-unquote new believer talk to you. Ask them, what does it mean to you? Well, how's that changed your life? And see what they say. You might be quite surprised. But the point is, let's avoid telling people that they're saved prematurely. After all, how do we even know if they're saved? How do we know their heart? That's a, that's a tendency that I think we need to get away from. So on the board, regarding being saved... Let that realization come from the Spirit himself. And the Spirit gives assurances as they see the fruits of a changed life. And that was what 1 John chapters 3 and 4 was all about, right? We went through this months ago, a couple months ago. The Spirit will convict each person if they're saved. The Spirit will show them the fruit in their lives and how their life has changed and how their mind has changed. So we've been learning lately about profession of faith. Anyone can profess to be a believer, but do they possess the faith? Are they really saved? Uh, Do they possess Christ? Or are they someone that is professing to be a believer for wrong motivation reasons? So how can we avoid misleading someone into a false sense of security of being saved? Who are we to do that? possibly giving a professing believer a vote of confidence when they don't actually possess Christ. And that's why I'm not one for altar calls, as in some churches, they call people up to the stage as a sign of their faith. You know, they, they might say, believe in Lord Jesus to be saved, and they say, come on up to the stage if you mean it, that kind of a thing. And I, I don't like that because it's putting people on the spot to do something for the wrong reason. And where do we see that in the Bible? Do you see when you read Acts, which is our great example of how to operate in the church, how to function, right? how to give the gospel, do we see the apostles calling people up to the stage? Or do we see them just giving the truth 
and whoever believes follows them. That's what we see. Do we see people saying, repeat this prayer after me? If you repeat these words, you'll be saved. Do we see that in the Bible? But we see that in modern Christianity. And I really don't think it's right. It's not in the Bible. Why would we do it? What we see on the board, what we see throughout the book of Acts, is the apostles declaring the truth about Jesus Christ. Sometimes to individuals, sometimes to groups, and then those who believe the message followed them. That's it. We don't see a twisting of arms. We don't see some kind of scheme to get people to come up to the stage and make a bigger group than is real. That had a heart faith. We don't see that being forced by the apostles. We see them sharing the good news and encouraging people to follow the word and to join them. And some came, some dispersed. That's it. There was no human coercion, for lack of a better way to put it. So our job is to give the clear gospel and to not falsely lead someone to believe they're saved when they may not be. Who the heck are we to do that, if you think about it? We can encourage people in the scriptures, you know, especially if they sincerely want to know about something, even eternal security. But who are we to assume somebody is saved from the heart? I looked up in a concordance the phrase, you are saved. In some concordances, you can do this online if you want. Some Bible concordances, you can type in a phrase or a word, and it'll give you all the verses that, that say that, use that word, okay? I typed in, just out of curiosity, the phrase, you are saved. And you know only one verse came up? And that doesn't mean that's 100% right, because there's variations of those wordings, and you know, you can keep looking. But I just wanted to see what came up. And one verse came up. Look which one it was on the board. 1 Corinthians 15, 2. In the NIV. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. Interesting, isn't it? Here we see caution in pronouncing somebody to be saved, not assumption. Caution. And there's a big if statement in this verse, isn't there? The genuine believer will follow Christ and his word in their life. That's really what this is saying here. Yeah, you're saved if you hold firmly to the word. Is it a works program? It's just saying if you don't hold to the word, you didn't really turn to Christ from the heart. It's really that simple. But of all the verses that came up, it's this one. So should we go around telling people, oh yeah, you're saved, don't worry about it. Oh yeah, you're saved, don't worry about it. Or should we cautiously challenge people and inquire about their faith, if they want to talk about it, if you're having a conversation? I just think we need to avoid giving people a false sense of security, possibly. God will do it for each believer. He'll give each believer security and assurance if they are a genuine believer. One of the times that Jesus confirmed an individual saving faith was with the woman with the alabaster vial. And maybe, just maybe, it was because there was clear evidence of her saving faith. He said about her she loved much in Luke chapter 7. He said she's forgiven much because she loved much. She's pouring this perfume on him. And at the end of that scene where she's worshiping him, 
he says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So he gives one person assurance at least. But why? Her life was evident. Her faith was evident in the works. And the Bible says that's what true faith, that's how it comes out. True faith is evident in the good, good works. It just is. It's what it is. Otherwise, it's not actually real faith. So the fruit of love was present in that woman, and Jesus reassured her of her salvation without hesitation. So the Spirit's been deepening our understanding of what regeneration is and what it means to be born again, right? Do you remember this point on the board that pastor stole from me? <laughs> I wasn't actually going to put it up there because he's been, he's been sharing it several times, but the Spirit did not let me take it out. So this is from Will Metzger. Remember this. Just think about this, okay? This is maybe what we need to come to realize as Christians. Regeneration and conversion are words to describe two different ways of viewing salvation. Regeneration is viewing salvation from God's side. It's an instantaneous impartation of new life to the soul. We may or may not be conscious of the exact moment this happened to us. All right? That's being born again. That's regeneration. But on the flip side, there's conversion. Conversion is viewing salvation from our perspective. It's a process of the entire work of God's grace from the first dawning of understanding and seeking to the final closing with Christ and new birth. For some, this is a period of years. For others, it's merely an hour. We respond in time to God's action in eternity. So, not understanding that there's a conversion process in the lives of people, that could be detrimental. And well-meaning Christians can interrupt the process that God's putting them through to actually really come to a point of genuine saving faith in Christ. We can get in the way. We have to remember that the Spirit doesn't always work according to our timetable. And we also have to remember that we cannot know the hearts of men. And we shouldn't assume it. So there is a pattern. But God does not limit himself as we see throughout the Word of God in the ways that He gives the Gospel. On the board, it helps to realize that people are not always regenerated the first time they begin to call on the name of the Lord. Just keep reading your Bible. And I just put a few examples on the board that came to me like off the top of my head. If we really wanted to research this, we could probably find a dozen or more of examples of people that claimed to be believers that called on the name of Jesus and were not genuine believers. The demon-possessed woman that was following Paul, she was giving the gospel accurately, and she was demon-possessed. How about those that the Lord said he never knew? They claimed to know the Lord. And then there's Simon the sorcerer in the book of Acts. We mustn't jump the gun and give people a false security when they may only be seeking or they may be in it for the wrong reason. Whatever that might be, I mean, think of the flesh. How many wrong reasons can the flesh come up with to do something? Right? Probably innumerable. So we don't know why someone's in our presence. We don't know why someone claims to follow when they're not following from the heart. 
We don't know the reason, their reason. We don't know what they've been through in their life to bring them to this place. So who are we to assume someone saved and give them a false security when maybe we should just be asking them questions and letting them elaborate on what faith really means to them? And then maybe, just maybe, we find out it's faith in another Jesus. And we have the opportunity to share with them who Jesus Christ really is. Only God knows, right? So, of course, we do not want non-Christians being deluded into thinking they're saved when they may not be. Look how First uh, John, John addressed the Gnostics in First John, right? The Gnostics were in the church. They were mixed in with the believers. And John said, you think you have no sin. What are you, what are you thinking you think you have no sin? So he was challenging these unbelievers that thought they were believers. So there's this process. We have to realize not all that think they're saved are saved. And we have to be cautious to give a false security. So our forefathers had a helpful distinction in this area. This is how they thought about it. They called an unbeliever who had no signs of being receptive a sleeping sinner. When they saw someone starting to respond to the spirits working and starting to learn and listen, maybe even to the word of God, they called them seeking sinners or awakened. But even then, they didn't call them believers or saved. They would then look out for a true positive response towards Christ's work on their behalf. For example, conviction of their sinfulness or an active call on Christ for salvation. And that would result in the sinner willingly exercising repentance and faith. In other words, humility. The seeking sinner or the awakened one who starts listening to the word and will start listening to you may even come to your church they haven't humbled themselves before the Lord yet, necessarily. They haven't reached out to the Lord to save them, necessarily. No one knows the heart of man. So keep this in mind on the board, that just because someone is seeking and maybe even coming to church and learning the Word, it does not mean that they've surrendered to Christ. You see the difference? And only the heart can surrender, right? That's not words. Words is not a surrender. And a heart surrender is a life surrender, too, which is what the Bible's been telling us. And that's what we're going to end with today soon. But we have evidence presented to us in a true believer. There's a certain surrender and humility in a true believer that is not present in a religious person who's doing things for the wrong reasons many times or maybe to look good, etc., So each of these stages, as you see on the board, let's call them stages, it reveals a different relationship with the Creator. For example, the seeking sinner, maybe now they have God consciousness. I have a friend, a dear friend from college that I talk to once in a while. He's got God consciousness. He's seeking. He believes in God, but he doesn't believe that Christ is the way yet. So please pray for him. His name is Chris. But you see all the stages someone can be at? Like Romans chapter 1 talks about being God-conscious, coming to God-consciousness because of creation. Doesn't mean they're saved, though, right? 
So you might have a good friend that talks about God all the time and the Creator all the time, but has not trusted in Christ from the heart as the true God. So the problem that, that I see in the church today is the tendency in modern Christianity to rush someone into the kingdom at the slightest sign of interest in spiritual things. And maybe you, you know, when you think back over the years, you can see that too. But that's what I think is going on in Christianity in America today anyway. This tendency to want to gather numbers and to rush someone in the kingdom because now we have more than you. I don't know why the heck that is important, right? The flesh getting in the way, obviously. Now we have more in our church. Now the Lord's moving in our church, and we want to show people that the Lord's moving in our church, so we need to include people in our group, even if they're not ready. So there's a false security that's thrown onto people that may not have surrendered to Christ. Just because someone goes to church doesn't mean they've trusted in Christ from the heart. Salvation is a heart issue, and that can never change. That can never be overlooked. On the board, even Jesus was cautious at times with certain people, not giving them a false hope, but even testing the spiritual conviction of his would-be disciples. And the most obvious examples of that are Nicodemus and also the moral rich man. They came to him and said they wanted to follow him. And Jesus pushed them back because he knew their hearts, right? But notice Jesus didn't just take them in and say, awesome, come on, follow me. There's a place and a time to challenge somebody's faith and especially avoid giving them a false hope, making sure that they know who Jesus really is. There were many people in the scriptures that would profess faith in Jesus or would even follow him for a short time and then go away. And Jesus would challenge them and push them away. How many times have we read about that? And the crowds, crowds of people following him. And he says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my, my blood, you can't be with me or whatever, right? And then half the crowd went away. Why did he say something so difficult? Because he wanted to test their hearts. He had no problem pushing people away because he knew that some weren't of genuine faith. He's like, I don't want to deceive you. Right? I don't even want to deceive you to think that you're saved, Nicodemus, just because you're giving me positive indications. It's a heart issue. So even Jesus himself was cautious. Here's something else that Metzger said in that book I'm reading. He said, point them to a personal savior, not just to the meaning in life or peace of heart or the like, because the root of our rebellion is personal sin against God. Point them to a personal savior. Why? Because our problem is personal sin against God. We have each personally offended God with sin. And that's why it is totally personal and between each person and God that they need to reconcile this thing and come to this conclusion. And he uses Jeremiah 29, 13 as an example 
And all that says there is, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Right? That's the true believer coming to, coming to Christ, surrendering the heart. I have sinned against you, Lord, and I'm ready to admit it. You know, save me. But that humility must be there. So I wrote here in my notes, and I, I think this is the way I think of it anyway. It needs to truly be a come to Jesus moment for people. You know, you've heard that phrase thrown around even in society, a come to Jesus moment. But that's the reality of saving faith because it's a heart issue. It's a surrender to Jesus Christ and that you need him. And then Metzger also said this on the board, true salvation not only secures the forgiveness of rebels, but their obedience as well. True salvation not only secures the forgiveness of rebels, which we all are, but it also secures their obedience, as in Hebrews 5.9. Go to Hebrews 5.9. And this has been coming up with us for months, hasn't it? The proof of our faith. There is evidence that will show up in the life of a genuine believer. Hebrews 5.9. And I always wondered what verses like this meant. There's even one in the Gospels that uses the word obey. Obeying the Gospel. I'd be like, why doesn't it just say believe there? And it all is coming together. It should be, you know, just like a puzzle fitting perfectly together. Because it's all throughout the whole Bible. As we read our Bibles, you see this over and over and over. Look at Hebrews 5.9. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Why does it say that? Because the believer will obey, at least to some degree. The genuine believer follows Christ. The one who is a professing believer is the one that doesn't follow Christ. And there's a lot of them in America, I believe. Because all you got to do is look at their fruit. There's none, zero, in a lot of people's lives. And I'm not talking about judging people. I'm talking about if someone professes to believe in Jesus Christ, but doesn't read the Word, doesn't go to church, doesn't, and is unwilling to talk about Jesus. Do you see a trend? It's kind of obvious, right? Like John said, the Apostle John said in 1 John, The children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. One is righteous and one is not. One keeps his word and one does not. So if there's zero fruit in a professing believer's life, I tell you that they're a professing believer. And maybe you should say, "What what do you really think about Jesus Christ? Who do you think he really is? I don't know. Trust the Spirit on that. But the Bible says it's obvious. And that obedience is a sign of genuine faith. Now, I'm going to ask you to concentrate. We're just going to go a few minutes long this morning because I need to get to a very important point, all right? So sit back in your chairs or straighten up or slap yourself in the face, whatever you got to do. Get ready, okay? Just 10 more minutes. But I want you to see something here that I think, again, it's coming full circle. The repeating point of the Spirit is that saving faith 
will show itself. Being evidenced by the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their lives, to some degree, especially love, and certain other markers pointed out by the Apostle John in 1 John. Now, love is not always going to be present in your life, okay? Because anytime you sin, you're not acting in love, right? And we all sin. Even believers sin. The Bible says that. So it's not like it's 100% you're always living in love. That's not what we're talking about. But we're talking about a lifestyle that at least shows up somewhere in your life. Some type of love. Some example of obedience. Some example of following Jesus Christ. There's some type of fruit. As in the parable of the sower. Jesus said they produce fruit some a hundredfold some 60-fold, and some 30-fold. So it doesn't mean the believer is perfect and that all believers are going to produce the same type of fruit, but it means there's some fruit in the genuine believer's life. So let's talk about, on the board, signs of salvation. If some of those, let's call them markers, aren't there in a new believer's life, they may only be a professing believer. Remember the Bible says it is possible to believe in vain in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 2. And I want to give you a couple examples of this, which I've never seen before in the Gospels. And this goes to Jesus being cautious with people, even those that say they believe. Go to John chapter 2, verse 23. John 2, verse 23. I want to give you a couple examples of false believers. And these are even in passages where the Bible says they believed. Okay? And that's what's so like uh, startling about this. It doesn't say these people were false believers or these people professed to be believers. It says they believed. Look at John 2, verse 23. Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover... During the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So there we see Jesus not trusting the very ones that believed in his name. And that's, you know, that's fair because we're all... You know, we all, we're all fall, we all still have the sin nature in us, right? Even after we believe in Christ, we all still fall away like the, all the apostles fell away from him at the cross. So this, you know, makes sense. Jesus knew not to trust any man because we were still in the flesh. Okay. Now go to John chapter 8. This is a, a more convincing case of mere profession of faith. In John 8, we're going to start in verse 30. And here we see a group of people described as believers, but they do not hold to Christ's teaching, and in the end they try to stone him to death. This is believers, supposedly. On the board, before we read this, regarding signs of salvation, Jesus was trying to convict them of the fact that unless their deeds match their claim of faith, it was not real faith. And the more and more you read your Bible in context, the more and more you're going to see this. It is everywhere, this concept on the board. 
And Jesus was trying to tell these people that believed in him that if their deeds did not match their claim of faith, it wasn't real faith, and they weren't saved. Look at John 8, verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. In other words, Jesus was saying, if you don't continue in my word, you're not truly my disciples. You see? Look at verse 33. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The Son does remain forever. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, Jesus is saying, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Who is he talking to? The believers in verse 30 and 31. Again, Jesus said in verse 37, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. Yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. He's talking about the devil. They answered him and said, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Kind of harsh, huh? Your father, the devil. Do the deeds of Abraham. You say... You're Abraham's children? Well, guess what? Abraham's children that have faith like Abraham, they do the deeds of Abraham. So you don't have true faith if you're not doing the deeds of Abraham. That that unveils the falsehood of your faith. So examine yourself, right? So again in verse 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born in fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Do you see again the lack of fruit Jesus is pointing out in verse 42? Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. But you don't. So that fruit reveals your false faith. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. 
For this reason you do not hear them, because you're not of God. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What is he pointing out to these Jews that believed in him? You're not keeping my word. So you have a false faith, my friends. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That's a salvation issue, isn't it? We're talking about eternal life and eternal death. And what does a true believer do? Keeps his word. Faith is evident by its deeds. In verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. These were supposedly believers in verse 30 and 31 that tried to kill him. This is more evidence that faith is revealed by the works. The genuineness of faith is revealed by good works. Genuine faith produces good fruit. And this is what we're going to close with right now. I need you to concentrate. Because God has been slowly feeding us this so that we could handle it over the last year or so. But it's all coming full circle, and I think it's becoming more and more of a full picture. I hope it is for all of you. Genuine faith produces good fruit, while spurious faith is revealed by not keeping his word, and possibly even attacking our Lord, even if it's only with words. So on the board, here's the conclusion. The Bible instructs people who believe in Christ to make sure they perform the deeds that come with true repentance. That is throughout the whole Bible, by the way. I used to think it was just John the Baptist that said that. And as I'm reading my Bible, I see it more and more and more. The Bible instructs people who believe in Christ to make sure they perform the deeds that come with true repentance. For that is the evidence that their faith is genuine. We're not talking about a works program here, everybody. We're not talking about earning salvation or working for salvation. Why does John the Baptist and even Paul say, make sure you perform the deeds that come with true repentance? They're saying, make sure your faith is legit. If your faith is real, these things will happen in your life. And if these things aren't happening in your life, you need to look back at your faith. Because maybe you're just being religious. Or you believed quote-unquote, for the wrong reason. You didn't really trust in Christ from the heart. So again, the Bible instructs people who believe in Christ to make sure they perform the deeds that come with true repentance. For that is the evidence that their faith is genuine. And please jot down these verses and, and read them. We don't have time today. But uh, Matthew 3, verses 7 through 10. Luke 3, 7 through 14. Those are both with John the Baptist saying, make sure you perform deeds with repentance. You say you, you, say you repent? Huh. Right, Pharisees. Perform deeds with repentance, then I'll believe you. 
Pretty simple, isn't it? In Luke 19, verses 8 through 9, Jesus, that's Jesus with Zacchaeus, the new believer, whose deeds proved his sonship of Abraham. John 8, verse 39 through 42, we just read that, where a son of Abraham has the deeds of Abraham. Genuine faith has deeds. And then in Acts 26, 19 through 21, the Apostle Paul said, perform deeds that keep with repentance. So from John the Baptist to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Apostle Paul, and then just think about the letters of James and John that confuse many people. It's really all one simple big picture of the fact that deeds reveal the status of faith or the truth of faith. And true faith has certain markers that must be present or it wasn't true faith because there wasn't a real change of heart. Does that make sense? I hope it does. I hope it's all coming together for you as it's, uh, it's quite a you know, shift, I guess we might say, in our theology, right? But it is everywhere in the scriptures. And if we keep the scriptures in context, we see the same principle on the board over and over and over and over. And it really is all about the gospel. The whole Bible is about the gospel, about learning it, following it, and giving the true gospel to other people. All right, we'll close on that note. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and your spirit. We know that true worshipers worship you in spirit and in truth. And we are privileged and honored to be those worshipers of you. And we thank you for the evidence of our faith. We thank you for the fruits that we see in our lives that we never had before, before our saving faith. And we thank you for the assurance from your Holy Spirit. Father, at this point, if anyone is listening to my voice who has never trusted in Christ for their salvation, we ask that you graciously help them turn to your Son. You are a sinner, as we all are, and you need a Savior. Repent of your sinfulness, turn from your self-reliance, and bow to Christ as your Lord and Savior. He's there right now waiting for you to surrender. The Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Father, we thank you for anyone who's believed today for the first time, who's turned to you from the heart. We welcome them to your family as your adopted children by your grace. Please bless us as we go, Father. We praise your name for all that you do for us and for all that you trust us with. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you.